Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. The atonement of Jesus Christ. That it is not anything that we have done or even possibly could have done that could have earned us favor and merit with God. But rather it is as we come to our to the feet of Jesus Christ and recognize that He does for us what we could never do ourselves that we find indeed remission of sins and salvation and eternal life. We are finishing the book of 1 Corinthians today. It will be a two-part message both this morning and this evening. I will be uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 in order that we can um, get through the, the material. The title of the message, Church Responsibility and Accountability. My teaching on 1 Corinthians began with a book sermon on August 18th of last year. We have been in this book now for um, 16 months and morning services, of course, in and out, doing other things. It has spanned, at, at the end of today, it will have spanned 50 sermons. And we now come to the end of the epistle and, um, you know, there's much that we've learned. We've learned of the possibility of the carnal Christian, a Christian that is driven by the impulses of his flesh as opposed to being led by the Spirit of God. We've learned about our liberty in Christ, that though certain things are indeed lawful as a believer, in that they are not inherently sinful, they are not necessarily what is best. They are not expedient for our Christian walk, for our Christian ministry. So, they may be lawful, but they may not be what is best, may not be what is expedient. We've learned about marriage. We've learned about divorce. We've learned about ministry. We've learned about giving. We've learned about the spiritual gifts. We've learned the, the biblical definition of love. We've learned about the resurrection and its implications. And today... Paul finalizes his thoughts, a final address to the church in Corinth concerning their responsibility as a local body of believers to function according to the will of God. Much of the book that, uh, as we've studied it, has been correction. That the church has been way off. They've been way off doctrinally. They've been way off theologically. They've been way off practically in their Christian lives. Paul has been seeking to correct them to, to um, get them back on track, to, to get them, to steer them back on course in their Christian lives, to shore up those areas where they were lacking in their meeting and in their Christian testimony. And so in this two-part message, uh, first half being preached this morning, the second half being preached this evening, we're going to look at the church's responsibility as Paul presents it in three areas. These are the things that Paul says, this is what I want to leave you with. As I'm closing this epistle, these are your expectations. Number one, the church is responsible to fervently and lovingly contend for doctrinal purity. And that's the only one we'll cover this morning. This evening we'll look at points two and three. 
Number two, the church is responsible to willingly submit to qualified spiritual leaders. And then number three, that the church is responsible to remove the disobedient from their fellowship. And this is how Paul is going to leave the book. And as we think about th this epistle and, and all that Paul has said, it makes sense that these would be the three things he'd hit, right? Because they're doctrinally in error, so he's going to remind them they need to contend for doctrinal purity. They have had some leaders in the church that have led them well, but they have not really submitted themselves to the leader's teaching, so it makes sense he'd, he'd remind them to submit to the teaching of, of their leaders. And then third and finally, they have some men in the church that may not take this correction in the book well. And Paul says, well, if, if they won't submit themselves to what the Bible says, then they need to be removed from fellowship. Responsibility is a fact of life, is it not? We all have responsibilities, whether or not we live up to those responsibilities. As a father, I'm responsible to care for my family. I'm responsible to keep food on the table. I'm responsible to keep a roof over our heads. I'm responsible to keep clothes on their backs. As a husband, I'm responsible for the well-being of my wife, to care for her physically, emotionally, and spiritually. As a pastor, I'm responsible for the hearts and the minds of the people that have committed themselves to my teaching and to my care. I'm a son, and I'm responsible to honor my parents and the Lord. I'm a citizen, and I'm responsible to obey the laws of the land and to, to submit myself to civil authority. These are all responsibilities that I have. And you know, I could wake up one day and I could say, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm going to go change my name. I'm going to go live off the grid. I'm going to leave my family behind. I'm going to leave my church behind. And I can do that. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm still responsible for those things, even if I'm abdicating my responsibility, right? And as Paul presents these responsibilities to the church, what he's telling them is you have responsibilities as well. Whether you do it or not, that's another question. But these are responsibilities that you as a church have. All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has taught them the responsibilities that they have. We just went through a list of some of those. And what Paul tells the church as he closes today in 1 Corinthians 16 is that the very nature of our relationship to the truth as believers makes us personally responsible to obey the truth. May I say that again? If you are a born-again believer in this room, then the nature of your relationship to the truth makes you responsible to obey the truth. You know the truth. You recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is authority. And because of what you know, you have a responsibility to obey it. As well, as we'll see today, we as a church have the responsibility of protecting that truth. I mentioned we'll only get through the first point this morning, but by God's grace, this will help us to have a deeper devotion to the Word of God in our own church. Let's read, if you would, 1 Corinthians 16. We'll read verses 13 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back. Paul says this, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of 
Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and to everyone that helpeth with, with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with an holy kiss, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We begin today in verses 13 and 14 learning about the responsibility of the church to fervently and lovingly contend for doctrinal purity. Paul says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. And we begin with this command that Paul gives, watch ye, watch ye. The word in the original languages literally means to keep awake or to watch. Uh, literally, to, to be looking out for. It's the same word that Jesus Christ used all throughout the Gospels to command his disciples to wait for his coming, to be ready, to be constantly looking, to be watching for Christ's return. But the idea of this word in this passage is very similar to the way it's used in Acts 20. And in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, the Bible says this, For I know this, Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, the same word, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul tells the church of Ephesus, this is shortly before he goes to Jerusalem and ends up getting arrested and appeals to Caesar, ends up in Rome, all of those things you're perhaps aware of. Paul tells Ephesus, assuming this is the last time he's going to see them, that he knows what's going to happen because it happens everywhere. Two things are going to happen in every church because this is what happens in churches. This is what happens on a religious plane. There's going to be men who teach false things, false religions, that are going to come in and they're going to try to tear up the true church of God. And there's going to be men who come from the true church of God. They are from us, but not of us, as John says in 1 John 4, or 3, excuse me. There are going to be some that come from within the church of God that are going to seek for their own way to be followed instead of God's way. So they're going to create their own doctrine and they're going to have error, but they're going to, through their charismatic personalities, through their um, tight logic, through their, through their mis misinterpretation of the word of God, draw people away. So Paul says there will be wolves that will come in and destroy the flock, and there will be some from within your own groups who will come and lead men away. He says, I know this is going to happen, so what you need to do, church at Ephesus, is watch. You need to be watching out for error. You need to be constantly on guard. You need to always have somebody guarding the gate of your church. Because when error comes in, it's hard to get out. And this is the same danger that Paul warned Timothy of. 
Timothy being a pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said this, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The idea that there will be some that will go towards seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. There will be others that will go toward legalism and uphold this legalistic idea of of religion. And he says, watch out. He would write again to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and say this in verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. A time when people will claim some form of religion, but they will have so many teachers around them and they will go looking for the teacher that meets what they want to hear. And they'll have itching ears and they'll always be looking for some new thing, some new truth. They'll always want something new. They'll always want to push the envelope of truth. They'll always want to find that that new source of, of, of ideas and of teaching and of doctrine. And they'll always find a teacher that can teach it. They'll always find someone. There's always someone out there that will give them what they want to hear. And so they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will turn their ears toward fables, stories, falsehoods. Because the falsehoods tell them what they want to hear and they don't want to hear the truth. So in the name of God, they will reject truth and they will go and they'll hear these teachers who are teaching error. Paul warns all throughout the epistles about the danger of error. That there are men and women who call themselves teachers, who claim to represent God, but have left the clear teachings of the word of God to pursue obscure teachings inaccurate interpretations of scripture, careful redefining of doctrine in order that they can pursue their own love and ignore the truth of the living God. And such was the case in Corinth. This was where Corinth found themselves. Men were openly fornicating in the church. Not in the church, but within the church. And the church was ignoring it. Men were abusing their liberties in Christ to pursue the lusts of their own flesh. Men were trivializing and excusing their sin under a false understanding of grace. They were pushing grace to its limits to where they were just like the world around them. They were living in the same sin the world was living in, but they said it's okay because we've been saved by grace. The church allowed these things because their doctrine had been so muddied and so confused and so misinterpreted that they just plain had nothing to stand on. They'd been lured to sleep, perhaps afraid of the consequences of making a stand, perhaps deceived into false doctrine. So Paul called on them to watch, he says, watch ye, to be constantly on guard, And when they see false doctrine, this second command here, their responsibility was to stand fast in the faith. When they come head to head with false doctrine, they're watching, right? So all of a sudden into their church comes some false doctrine. 
and they can do one of two things. They, well, one of three things. They can agree with it, ignore it, or they can stand against it. Paul says, watch for false doctrine, and when it comes, stand fast in the faith. That which you have taught, that which you can read in the Word of God, that which is plainly given to you, stand fast in the faith. Contend for what is right. The church of God must not be moved by error. And notice the picture here. The idea is not that as the church we're supposed to be chasing error around. Error's over here. Let's go pick at our error. Error's over here. Let's go contend against error. Chasing error. We'd be, we'd be busy. Right? All that. If your pastor spent all their time preaching against error, I'd never preach any truth. I'd be too busy preaching error all the time. There's a new error coming up every day. There's just too much error to, 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 to run around chasing all the error, trying to put out the, the, the error, the fire of every error that we come across. The idea is not that we're running around chasing error. It's that we're standing fast in the truth. We do what is right. We preach what is right. And then when error comes, we know it's error because we've been doing what is right. And we say, nope, that's not for us. We don't want it. We fight when necessary, but we just plain don't give ground. We stand against error. Paul commanded the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Test it. Try it. Everything that comes into your ears, try it. Is it right? Is it good? Is it virtuous? And once you've tried it, only hang on to that which is good. Let the rest go. Stuff's going to come across your, your desk, right? Things are going to come into your ears, come into your eyes, come into your mind. All day, we're being inundated with the world. We're being inundated with truth claims. We can't avoid it, nor do we need to. But when false claims come, we stand fast against them. They bounce off of us. They keep moving. We stand firm. That's what Paul is saying here. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Test it, prove it, and then hold fast that which is good. That which pleases the Lord. John would say a similar thing in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, prove, test the spirits whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. When a man comes along with spiritual claims, we compare his message against the scriptures. If his message agrees with the scriptures, then we accept him as a teacher. If his message disagrees with the scriptures, then we stand in the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints, that is the word of God, and we do not accept the teaching of the man who has his spiritual claims. This is our ruler. This is our canon. This is what we gauge every claim by. If a man comes with a truth claim and it's not in this book, then we don't want it. If a man comes with truth claims and they align themselves with those scriptures, now no man is perfect, we know that, right? You don't agree with everything your pastor believes. You probably don't agree with everything your pastor has preached. But... I can take the Bible and show you why I believe what I believe. 
and it's not way out there in left field, misinterpreting the Bible. From a clear reading of the scriptures, I can, I can show you. And so we assess it as such. This is the responsibility of the church of God. The church is responsible for... Um, sorry for the typo in that. Just noticed that. The church is responsible to fervently and lovingly contend for doctrinal purity. So Paul says it this way. He says, watch. He says, stand fast. And he says it this way. Quit you like men. Be strong. The word literally means what it says. Be strong. I know we have women in here. And Paul knew that there were women in the Corinthian church. He's not trying to be a male chauvinist here. In fact, the whole philosophy of modern feminism in the church is one that is excessively destructive to the church. It's one of those false teachings that we must stand against. The Bible is very clear about the importance of women, but also the importance of maintaining gender distinctions. Men and women are physically different, emotionally different, designed to serve in a different role, a different capacity in society. This is not gender discrimination. This is not male chauvinism. This is simply a reasonable recognition of God's design. God's de- God designed men to be the head of the women. God designed men to be the leaders of home and society and church. God designed women to be under submission to the man. God designed women to follow in home and society and church. This is God's design. This is not men lifting themselves up in some patriarchal uh, control freak uh, attempt to, to rule the world. This is God's design. So, so Paul is not trying to be chauvinistic here. He says, quit you like men, be strong. This does not mean that women are less valuable than men. This does not mean that they're second class citizens. In fact, as the Bible describes women, it describes them as unique treasures of very precious value and of, of tremendous worth. But this does mean that men and women are different. And the more willing we are to conform ourselves to the gender roles that God has prescribed in the scriptures, the better off we'll be. We spoke of these truths more specifically in my sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1-16. through 16. You can perhaps go back online and listen to that if you'd like. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16, through 16, it is online, and uh, I talked more about gender roles as we considered um, in that passage particularly, talked about head coverings um, and women's roles in the assembly. So Paul's not trying to be discriminatory here, but we all um, recognize what he is saying. I, I have two daughters. As they get older, there will be physical, emotional, and spiritual battles that they will need to fight. As their father, my response to these battles will be uh, very sensitive because they're young ladies. This is often what young ladies need. A hug, an ear to listen to, gentle advice. I am their protector until such time as they leave my protection to, to join under the protection of their husband one day. And as such, I must treat them with the care and love that God has commanded, recognizing my responsibility over them and recognizing their particular needs as young ladies. I also have a son. As my son gets older, he will have physical, emotional, and spiritual battles that he will fight as well. 
My response to these battles will be in just as much love and just as much care and just as much carefulness in order that uh, I help him get through those battles well. But he's a man, which means my response to his battles will be different than will be my response to my daughter's battles. See, because he's going to have to learn how to fight his battles, he's going to have to learn how to lead a family, he's going to have to learn how to, how, to, how to lead a household, he might have to learn how to lead a business or lead a church, he's going to have to learn how to take some initiative, he's going to have to learn how to pull himself up in the Lord, how to, how to flee to God. He may not always have somebody to give him a hug. He may not always have somebody to, to, to be an ear. And so there might be a time where I discern, it's time for me just to look at my son and say, son, it's time to be a man. It's time to be a man, suck it up and make the decision you need to make. It's time to be a man and do what you need to do. Time to take responsibility. Time to make the decision to accept the consequence. Time to move on, whatever it might be. And I teach him this not because I dislike him or because I am not interested in him succeeding, but because as a man, there are going to be circumstances and responsibilities placed upon him that will never be placed upon my daughters, Lord willing. That's the flavor that Paul is giving here. The idea of this verse. When the time comes, and the time will always come, that false doctrine will seek to invade the church, it's time for the church to stand on something. Not to cower in a corner. Not to, to, to uh, set the issue aside and, and say, we'll dialogue about this uh, when, we, when we can wrap our heads around it a little bit more. It's time to stand. It's time to make a decision. It's time to be a man. Be strong. That's what, what Paul is saying here. It's time to oppose the, the error to fight for purity in the church. So it's, it's an illustration that Paul is using. And I believe it's an apt one in many ways. And this all sounds very contentious, doesn't it? It is contentious. We are in a, in a spiritual battle. We're not fighting people. But we are fighting spiritual ideas. We, we've talked about this before. The people out of these doors, they're not your enemy. The enemy is the one who's compelling them to do what they do. It's a spiritual enemy. It's a spiritual wickedness. For we wrestle not, the scriptures say, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world. We see it as a spiritual battle. We fight it as a spiritual battle. And as Paul presents this, he says in verse four, 14, excuse me, let all your things be done with charity. Doctrinal error is not a game. Doctrinal error is not a laughing matter. It's not a minor thing. It is the very foundation of doctrine, is the very foundation of our faith. And when the foundation crumbles, I guarantee you everything else does as well. It may take a generation, but when doctrine fails, when doctrine crumbles, when we lose sound doctrine, everything else will follow. Morality will follow. The gospel will follow. Everything will follow if doctrine 
crumbles. But as we stand, as we contend, as we fight this battle, it must be fought in love. Biblical love, we define it in this church this way. Doing what is best for the one who is loved or for the object of our love, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. Doing what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. Love is not tolerance. Love and tolerance are not the same thing. In fact, quite often, love and tolerance are on the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Remember with me Paul's definition of love. He gave it in 1 Corinthians 13. Again, you can go listen to that sermon. We talked through it. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Paul says this, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. True biblical love is absolutely selfless. We do not fight against false doctrine in self-preservation. We fight against false doctrine because it is introducing error where truth is essential for the eternal well-being of its hearers. May I say that again? We do not fight against false doctrine in self-preservation. We don't fight against false doctrine because, oh, if people go over to their doctrine, then we'll lose members. Then we'll lose money. Then we'll lose popularity. That's not why we fight this battle. We fight against false doctrine. Because it is introducing error where the truth is essential for the eternal well-being of the hearers. If my children opened a school book and read that 2 plus 2 equals 5, which we're working that way in our education system, at least publicly, but if they were to open a school book and hear 2 plus 2 equals 5, it would not be loving to them to let them go on believing that, would it? Simply because I don't want to tell them that they're wrong, it would not be loving to let them go on in their error. The most loving thing I can do for my children is to patiently, gently, and carefully ensure that they know the truth. Love is not interested in personal advantage or disadvantage. Love is not afraid of being ill thought of or being misunderstood. Love is interested in what is best for the hearers. When my child is reaching up to touch a hot burner, I will patiently warn, then sternly warn, but sometimes the most loving thing I can do is smack that hand away. She may not like it, but it's in her best interest. And Paul exhorts the church to do the same thing. When false doctrine arises, be patient, be gentle, but be immovable. We don't have to make everybody angry at us for the way that we're presenting truth. But if we fail to present the truth, that's not love. If we 
move ourselves away from the truth, that's not love. That may be tolerance, but that's not love. Love cannot abide sin and error. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Which means you are not being loving if you are allowing, particularly a fellow believer, to persist in sin. If you allow false doctrine to come into the church without saying anything, that is not love. That is cowardice. That is ignorance. That is apathy. But that is not love. Love cannot abide sin and error. Love rejoices in truth. True love only exists where truth is preeminent. So Paul calls upon the church to let all your things be done with charity. They were not to pursue doctrinal purity with unfeeling coldness, nor are we. They were not to uh, be excessively abrasive, feeling that the more angry people get at them, the better they're doing at their job. That's not, that's not what we do. That's not us. That's not, that's not a Christian mentality. But we are to lovingly guide men into the truth, and we are not personally to sway from the truth ourselves. And that's a great responsibility, isn't it? This is a responsibility that Paul places upon the church in Corinth. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. And you and I bear the same responsibility today. We as a church are responsible to fervently, lovingly contend for doctrinal purity in the church. And there is no greater need in today's Christian culture, is there? We as a church have failed. And I say it this way specifically, particularly, for a reason. In just a moment, I'm going to list some of the many ways that the church has failed in its responsibility to fervently and lovingly contend for doctrinal purity in this age. And as we go through this list... We will recognize that our own little local church does not suffer from the same degree of failure as the church at large. And as I go through this list, the tendency, the temptation will be for you to start thinking of everybody other than yourself. The temptation will be for you to say, ah, yes, they're all so wrong. Because that's human nature. But I'm reminded of an example by the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 9, the prophet prayed a prayer of confession unto God. Now Daniel was, by scriptural admission, one of the most righteous men recorded. When, in the book of Ezekiel, God is intending to make a point about how wicked Judah is being, he says, even if Job and Daniel, two of the men that he uses, even if they were with you in the city, I would not spare the city for their sake. Even if those righteous men were in the city. So Daniel is elevated by Scripture and by God as a, a striking and one of the pinnacles of the example of righteousness. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, look at what Daniel prayed. Daniel said, I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession, my confession, 
and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in the name of our kings, our prince, in thy name, excuse me, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel, as a man of stellar righteousness who had lived at this point nearly 70 years in Babylon, serving the Lord, bringing many to the Lord, having been cast into a lion's den, having been threatened to be killed several times, being elevated to second in command, perhaps while Nebuchadnezzar was in his time of um, mental obscurity, he may have been the leader of Babylon. And as he gets on his knees, it's this aged man who looks at Israel, he says, we, God, have sinned. I am going to make my confession to you. Daniel assumed full responsibility for his people's rejection, for his people's sin. And maybe that's what we need today. Maybe instead of those of us who, who try to do it very well and contend for the purity of the faith and, and desire to do what's right and, and uh, believe that, that we are on firm footing, maybe instead of just looking at everybody else and saying, them, 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 we need to start saying, us, God's church, has failed. God's church has wandered. Maybe we need to start asking God for forgiveness for the way our church has gone in this country. And maybe as those who do indeed do their very best to stand in the Word of God and in the righteousness of God, maybe as we begin to gain a heart for God's people a little bit more, maybe maybe it will open up an opportunity for the Lord to, to hear the righteous on behalf of those that are not. Why is it so important? Because the Western church has been crippled by false doctrine today. The Western church has been crippled by co- political correctness and by false teachers. The Western church is afraid to preach against sin because we are afraid of becoming the next big headline. The Western church has brought into the idea, has, excuse me, we've bought into the idea that love equals tolerance. That if we tell anybody that they are wrong, we are being judgmental, closed-minded. That we're seeking to deny men the privilege of thinking for themselves if we stand on anything. We have been fooled into believing that men and women are to be treated not just as equals, but as identicals. We have bought into the world's victim mentality, assuring people that it's not their fault that they're sinful. It's not their fault that they have sinful thoughts and sinful actions. And by allowing political correctness to dictate the church's teachings and actions, we as God's church have failed in our responsibility to contend for doctrinal purity. We have yielded the truth of God's word and have sacrificed doctrinal purity, and in doing so we have lost an entire generation. Why are our children leaving 
the church by leaps and bounds because we failed to teach pure doctrine to them. We have compromised the truth because we were afraid of being called closed-minded. It's not closed-minded to dogmatically stand for truth. It's not closed-minded to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we, as God's church, we do not reject other religious claims because they are different from ours. We reject them because they're baseless and false. Jesus proved his authority as he stilled the winds and waves on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus proved his authority when he multiplied the loaves and fishes. Jesus proved his authority when he cast out the devils and healed the lepers and the blind and the lame. Jesus proved the authenticity of his truth claims when he rose from the dead on the third day after wicked men had crucified him for no fault of his own. And if we were blindly following baseless claims and refusing others their own ideas, then we would rightly be called closed-minded. But it is not closed-minded to stand on truth and reject error. The Western church has become proud. We have become the judges of scriptures instead of allowing the scriptures to judge us. We step into the word of God with judgmental hearts, critical hearts, thinking that we have the authority to decide what the Bible says and what it does not say. We read plain words, we read obvious commands, and we perform all manner of creative manipulation to get the Bible to say what we want it to say. So where the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth, we redefine corruption so that we can say what we want to say. Where the Bible says whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. We convince ourselves that the Bible couldn't possibly understand the difficulty of doing that in the culture in which we live, and therefore it's irrelevant. Where the Bible says, suffer not a woman to teach, we explain it away. Where the Bible says, divorce is a sin, we superimpose all manner of exceptions. Where the Bible says, sodomy is an abomination unto the Lord, we water it down and excuse it. Where the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, I'm doing better than that guy, so I must be fine. And in doing so, we place ourselves above the scriptures and we look at the scriptures top down. We make ourselves the judges of Scripture where in fact the Bible teaches us that the blessing of God upon God's people rests upon we who will approach the Word of God in humility and in complete submission asking God to help us be what He desires us to be. We have become, as a Western church, ignorant. Unable to defend the Bible because we don't know the Bible. We'll read books about the Bible, but we won't read our Bibles. We'll spend our time and our money hearing people talk about things about the Bible, but we won't read our Bibles. We want every message to be relevant to us today, to be placed on a platter, easy to digest. We're impatient when we're asked to study, to dig, to listen, to learn, to grow, to be patient. We need the, we need the, the, the quick solution. The quick fix Christian culture 
looking for something simple and easy to fix our problems that won't take too much work. We crumble when we're challenged about our faith. When we're challenged about the character of God, the truths of God's Word, not because there are no answers, but because we are unwilling to take the time and effort necessary to learn the answers. We've become faithless, lazy, afraid that if we offend people, we'll lose them, we'll lose giving members, not be able to fund the massive religious empires we're trying to build. We'll not speak against sin for fear that the people in the seats will not return. We've bought into the lie that we must win culture by conforming to culture. We've brought church planting down to a science that with enough money and advertising, proper length of service, certain music, we will get people to come into a church and it will grow. And all of these problems, pervasive in our Christian culture, reflect our failure to fervently and lovingly contend for doctrinal purity. But it need not be so. And as far as this church is concerned, it will not be so. The Word of God is not opinion. It is fact. We do not believe what we believe to make us feel better. We do not believe what we believe to reform our culture or to raise up good citizens or moral children. We believe what we believe because God is our creator and he is our authority. Because God's word is true and he will hold us accountable for what the Bible says whether we believe it or not. We are called by God to stand upon the clear teachings of scripture and to patiently, gently, but fervently... Oppose those who would oppose the faith that is taught in the Word of God. And so we stand, not in anger, not in pride, but in humility and love. We stand fast in the faith because it pleases our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave His life for us. That's our motivation. We're not motivated by our own loyalties to our own people. We're not motivated by our own traditions and loyalties to them. We're motivated by the Word of God to stand. Because there's a world that's lost in darkness. Men and women lost in this world, confused and seeking answers, seeking truth, seeking light, seeking that which is right. We don't have the answers, but the Bible for us. The world and much of the church is trying to tell us that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And what they need is someone to stand on the truth. The world needs someone to tell them that there is such a thing as truth. That we are accountable to a God. That God does have expectations and that we know those expectations because God has told us in His Word. They need to hear that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to reveal Himself to the world, to pay the penalty for their sin, which they had committed willingly against God and could never repay. The world needs to hear that God's love sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die on the cross to pay for those sins. The world needs to hear that Jesus rose again the third day. 
The world needs to hear that he's sitting on the right hand of God. And the world needs to hear that if they don't accept the truth, not our truth, God's truth, that they will spend eternity burning in hell. And this is God's will for the church. That we would fervently, earnestly contend for doctrinal purity. Tonight we'll learn that the solution to sin in the church is biblical separation. Removing from our fellowship those who make false spiritual claims in order to secure the purity of the church. If you can't make it back tonight, I encourage you to try. But if you can't, uh, by all means, the sermons will be online. You can listen to them later on this week. But as we close today, it's my prayer that we would exemplify the words which we studied just a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It was not long ago we were there, and, and it says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray.